Hello, I'm Susan Spence. Welcome to the latest edition of the Borders Podcast. This is the place to listen to interviews and news from the world of books, music and DVD, as well as hear about exclusive offers and competitions. In this edition, we speak with the best-selling crime writer Ian Rankin about his novella, A Cool Head, written especially for the Quick Read series. For those of you who love reading but struggle to find the time or to make your way through a whole book, Quick Reads provide the perfect solution, with short, fast-paced books by best-selling writers and well-known personalities. We find out why Ian Rankin was keen to get involved. We also chat to Sabrina Broadbent, the author of A Boy's Guide to Track and Field. Her new novel is called You Don't Have to Be Good, a thought-provoking story that looks at what happens when a woman reaches the point where being good is no longer an option. And Ruth Atkins from the Borders Buying Team tells us what new releases to look out for in the coming months. Well, just before we get started, a reminder that you can buy all the books we feature in this podcast by visiting our website. That's borders.co.uk. And there's now the added benefit of free delivery on all your UK orders made online. Our first guest is Sabrina Broadbent, a former head of English. Sabrina is a novelist who's already received acclaim for her debut, Descent, a tragedy-comedy about motherhood, madness and marriage. And many of you will be familiar with her second book, A Boy's Guide to Track and Field. Sabrina's third novel is called You Don't Have to Be Good. And as with her previous two books, she writes with sharp-eyed observation of everyday life. Sabrina, thank you very much for popping into Borders Charing Crossroad to have a chat with us. Uh, your new book is called You Don't Have to Be Good, which is a great title, but just give us an idea of what the story is about first. You Don't Have to Be Good is about um, a middle-aged, childless woman who's being half emailed to death at work and begins to get the sense that she's starting to disappear from her own life. And uh, one day she gets up and goes to work and she does vanish. So it's actually about a woman who, who just goes and disappears. And it's about the, the uh, sort of hole that her absence leaves in the life, lives of the others around her. And she's called B. I would have said she's a bit of a people pleaser. But then as the story unravels, as we get towards the middle and the end, it's quite clear she's a very complex woman. Yeah, I mean, she's, um, she's a kind of an amalgam of uh, lots of women and all kinds of women that are inside me and other people that I know. Um, I think that lots of women uh, are people pleasers, that we tend to be brought up to be that. Um, and I think that we spend a lot of our lives, certainly up until middle age, uh, trying to um, be approved of, to gain the approval of other people. Um, and I, I began to feel that actually it would be a great relief and a release if women learned um, not to navigate their lives by men. Is it a bit like, when I was reading it, I got the sense it was a little bit like Shirley Valentine, but with more substance. Yeah, it, it's it's certainly a theme which, which I, I think has been tackled in that film. You know, uh, a woman gets up and goes. Um, I think the possibly it's darker. Um, a lot of my writing is fairly dark. I quite like what Martin Amis says about um, the modern novel. He was asked once what the novel, modern novel tells us. And he said um, he thought that it probably told us that we all need heartbreak to know that we're human. 
And then he said, uh, you know, it's got to be the right kind of heartbreak. And then he says, and even if you don't believe that's true, you're going to get it whether you like it or not. So it has a darkness in it, which um, I think is sort of um, running alongside all of our lives. Yeah, I think it's very clear from the opening chapter that here are two people who are in an empty marriage. They should never be together. They really shouldn't be staying together. Why they are, God alone knows. And it's very sad. And I have to admit, I read that chapter twice. I read it twice because when I first read it, I thought, I think I'm missing the point. Then I reread it because it, the, the, the writing within that first chapter is quite subtle. And you could take, or I would say as a reader, you could take a couple of different meanings from it. Yeah, um, I think that's true of most of the book. And I think that's true of most books I would want to read, that, you know, if it speaks too directly to you, um, it's a certain kind of novel and it's not one you can really have a conversation with. Uh, and in that first chapter, um, yes, it's very clear that they're in a marriage that, that they should probably both leave. Uh, and that is another kind of area that I explore in the book, um, you know, the business of, you know, leaving relationships or hanging on to the bitter end and so on. Um, but I also wanted to show that um, it's, it begins with them waking up in the night, this couple in the dark, and thinking they have heard a noise and thinking that someone has either come in or just left. And there's that feeling that I think we've all had when you wake in the night, and there is something wrong. Uh, Frank, the husband, looks at his wife, B and thinks that she's disappeared, that she's changed into something else. And uh, B. Uh, knows that she's heard something and that something has happened. And actually, what has happened is that their marriage has got up and left. And that was the noise that they heard. Yeah, it really is very subtle. That's why I had to read it twice. But that chapter, uh, the first chapter is called Gone. And all the chapters, um, as well as being very short, they all just have one word, you know, like gone or what. What was the reasoning? I, I assume that was very intentional. I'm very interested in short words. Uh, um, I teach a lot of Shakespeare at school um, as a teacher and um, in all the sort of long agonizing analysis that we do of uh, key speeches and so on what I repeatedly find and what the students discover with me is that actually everything turns on a tiny simple word like the word yet or but or so and actually, I think those, those sort of small, very acute grammatical signals are kind of the signals which are pointing us in all kinds of areas in our lives. You know, if we just stopped and thought, yet or but. Let's talk about some of the other characters in, in the book, because there are quite a few characters, actually. Um, I have to say my favorite is Adrian. Um, he's a, he's a young 12 year old boy. He seems to be quite perceptive, quite intelligent and sensitive. I would say, in fact, there's one bit where he's talking to his uncle, Frank, who's B's husband. Um, you can explain the significance of the children in a moment uh, rather than me, but there's one bit where he, he basically observes that they don't share a bedroom. And uh, he finishes the conversation by saying to his uncle, not sharing a bed is not nothing. He's a great little character. Did you base him on any of the students that you've taught over the years? Uh, I based him on, um, I mean, I, d I have taught lots and lots of teenagers and it has to be said, I am very fond of them. I think that although quite often they can be a pain in the ass, they are actually, there are many, many sort of characters in that group, not surprisingly, of humans, um, who are a kind of joy and uh, a kind of an epiphany, really. And that's what Adrian is. He's uh, got 
bright red hair, very pale, um, odd, and extremely clever. And he, you know, he likes sort of setting off fireworks and things. And he, yeah, I mean, I know quite a lot of boys like him. And I sort of feel uh, that it's the teenagers in that book who sort of hold the hope, really, for the future. But Adrian and Laura, who um, are two of the kiddies that, that B, B and Frank look after on a regular basis, they are her sister Catherine's children. Um, and it's, it's quite clear that they've got a huge bond between them. Um, one of the things I liked about it right on in the beginning was to do with <laughs> was to do with the cows when she <laughs> when she got when B gets trapped and she makes this mad phone call and says come and get me because I you know I'm basically being about to be eaten by cows um, and she's standing knee deep in a in a river that struck a chord with me and I'll tell you why because our family holidays we always used to go to a farm quite regularly uh, on the, in the Scottish coast. And we would go walking in the fields. It was a proper, you know, working farm. And I would be terrified because I would be frightened to climb a fence in case all of a sudden a cow came and got me. And it was because of years previously, I had been standing around in a sort of by a tree. And then all of a sudden, all around me were a whole load of cows. I didn't know if one was a bull and it was going to chase me. And I was absolutely just frozen until my parents came and, and kind of rescued me. So I totally related to that. But where did that really fit in the story? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, first of all, um, I share your horror of cows, and I think the world should know that cows are very dangerous. And actually, I, I have a friend whose sister was almost trampled to death by cows. And I do know for a fact, although I find very few people believe me, that um, women quite often, well, two women a year or something, do get trampled by cows. There's something going on. We don't know what it is, but in cow land and in cows' heads, something odd is happening. So be careful. Um well, the reason that scene is in the book is because this is a couple of weeks after B has woken in the middle of the night and heard her marriage get up and leave. Um, she's, she's going through the menopause. She's kind of turning into something a bit swampy. She's going for a walk. She's slightly out of her head on, I don't know what hormone rages around at that point in your life. Anyway, probably estrogen. Um, and, or not enough of it. And uh, she finds herself menaced by the cows, which, as you've just agreed, can happen. Mm -hmm. And so she's, she um, clambers into the river because she's afraid. But, of course, having got into the river, she's then in some danger of being washed away. And um, I was, so, again, I mean, I think what I often do um, in my writing is it is funny, it is slightly bizarre, but there is also a kind of very dark undercurrent, which is there is a sort of you know, a, a possibility that she might just do a Virginia Woolf and uh, go under the water. Now, the children are obviously a key point in her in her life. And when, when she actually goes missing, it appears to be that the, the catalyst is the fact that her sister Catherine and the two children are heading off and, and moving somewhere else. And that quite clearly, one would assume, makes her think, oh, my God, I'm going to be left with this life and I really don't want it. And she disappears. I have to say, if... If I hadn't read the sleeve um, before ha before reading the book, I wouldn't have thought at that moment that that lady was going to disappear. What, why did she disappear? Was it for the reasons that I've said or something a little bit more underlying, really? I mean, something else that I'm interested in and that this book explores is the fact that we, we, we believe that we know people and we talk about people's characters when we're reading books and we talk about uh, things being out of character if people do things like disappear. Um, and I suppose I'm, I'm interested in looking at the fact that we don't really know each other that well. 
Um, and I think the evidence of that is that in this country, strangely, you know, 600 people go missing every day. And for all of those 600, it is probably a great surprise and a great shock to the people that know them and their families. And that was actually one fact which um, made me start, which sort of kick-started the writing of this book. I thought, how can that possibly be? How can... And every time when I researched it and I talked to missing persons units at the Metropolitan Police and so on, and they said to me that, you know, almost every case the relatives said, you know, it's so out of character. And I was interested in that phrase. And I don't think as well that people plan these kinds of events. I mean, any more than they might plan their own murder or, um, you know, other kind of catastrophes that befall us. Disappearing uh, clearly happens to quite a lot of people every day. I don't think it's planned. I think it's spur of the moment. And uh, I don't think you can sort of... I think it's too simplistic to say that, that, you know, it's selfish and um, irresponsible. I think people find themselves in a state a bit like the river where they're not quite sure how they got in there. Let me ask you then, this is obviously your third novel. Um, any plans to work on another? Uh, surprisingly enough, I have actually started my fourth novel, which is called The Secret Life of Girls. And it's about what girls are really like before they get to the age of nine and three quarters. And let me ask you as a final question. We're coming up for holidays. What will Sabrina Broadbent be taking to lie by the pool with? Oh, well, actually, I'm going sailing to um, Ithaca. In the Ionian Sea. <laughs> we should point out there that Ithaca is actually in the book towards the end of the book. You will realise that as you get as you make your way through it. I, I was actually going to ask you how you enjoyed going to these places, but clearly you did because you're going back again. Um, I didn't know that was going to happen. Somebody had just popped up out of the blue. Did I want to come on a boat to Ithaca? So I thought, mm, yes, please, I, I will. Um, what will I be taking? Uh, well, I love reading, um, I, I love reading um, Garcia Marquez. I might take a little bit of him and do a reread. Um, I also love reading um, Alice Munro and Atwood, um, Salinger, all, all kinds of people. Actually, I might take some non-fiction of Martin Amos because that's, I think, his best. Sabrina, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Uh, best of luck with the book. It's called You Don't Have to Be Good, and you can pre-order it right now at borders.co.uk. It's published in hardback on June the 4th. Now, it's a bit of a minefield deciding where to go on holiday this year. A lot of travellers are looking beyond the Eurozone to ensure they get the best value for money on their holidays. So destinations like Egypt, India and Morocco, they're all becoming increasingly popular. And to help you make your choice and ease the financial burden, Borders are offering you 25% off all our travel books. That's including maps, guides, atlases and travel writing. So like Louis Theroux's Call of the Weird and also the inspiring Touching the Void by Joe Simpson. Also, if you need a bit of help deciding on where to go this year, have a listen to our March podcast, where Tom Hall from Lonely Planet gave us tips for alternative holiday destinations. You'll find all the previous pods at borders.co.uk forward slash podcast. Well, it's that time of year where we turn our attention to summer holidays and what book to pack in our suitcase. Well, if you're looking for something a little bit different this year, then Ruth Atkins from the Borders Buying Team is the lady to tell us what to choose. Uh, Ruth, you've got a couple of choices for us. Uh, What's your first one? 
the first one is Brooklyn by Colm Toybin, um, which is set in Ireland in the 1950s. There's a young girl called Elis who lives with her um, mother and older sister, and uh, she's unable to get work, so her older sister, um, who's very enterprising, wrangles her the opportunity to move to America, where a job has been arranged for her in a department store. Um, and over in Brooklyn, she sort of builds a new life slowly, but tragic news from home brings her back a year later, and she has to make a really heart-wrenching choice, and it's a really beautiful book. Now, he's actually, Colm has actually had books out in the past. Is this similar to stuff he's done before? Um, fairly similar. Quite Most of his books are set in Ireland, but the one he's probably most famous for was The Master, which was about Henry James, um, and that was um, the book he was shortlisted for the Booker for. Um, but he's just a beautiful writer. It's, it's quite simple writing, but just really understated and, and um, quite emotional. And, yeah, it's, it's, just, it's just great, highly recommended. And the next book is The Hungry Ghosts by Anne Berry. Yeah, it's out this month. It's the first book on a new sort of literary imprint. Um, and it's basically about, it starts in Hong Kong in 1942, where a young Chinese schoolgirl is is brutally murdered by a Japanese soldier and her spirit takes refuge in a sort of derelict army hospital, which then reopens as a British colonial school about 25 years later. And the ghost sort of chooses a schoolgirl to be her host for the next um, sort of 20 years. And uh, there's a girl called Alice who she chooses, who's the daughter of a high-ranking official in Hong Kong. And uh, her, her life's not very happy. Her family are, are kind of um, pretty messed up. But um, So this ghost kind of haunts her and causes her loads of problems and she ends up moving back to England. It's just, it just follows her as she gets older and, and things kind of go from bad to worse. It sounds quite bad, but actually it's, it is quite a, it's a very interesting and really beautifully written book. I have to say, it wasn't. I was just thinking, I'm lying for the pool, and I'm thinking, goodness me, I'm not quite sure I can imagine myself reading this one. But if you are into ghosts and that kind of thing, then people will love it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's basically about a sort of broken family at the heart of it who, who are full of secrets and lies, like there's affairs going on and that kind of thing. It's, it's, there's a lot going on in it, but it's really compelling, and it's a, the it's a first novel, it's a debut. I think it has a huge amount of potential. And uh, you've got four, of course, you're recommending, so that's two for us. What's your third one? Uh, the third one is out in July. It's called This Is How by MJ Highland. Um, I think she was also shortlisted for the book of her novel, Carry Me Down. Um, <laughs> it's another sort of bleak book, I'm afraid. Um, Patrick is a young man who's um, sort of slightly detached from the world. He, he has really strong experiences towards people, but never seems to be able to make a genuine connection with them. Um, and following the breakdown of his engagement with his fiance, he moves to a boarding house in a seaside town. And um, here his fate is sort of sealed one evening when he reacts rather violently to the behaviour of, of someone else who boards at the, um, at the boarding house and uh, it sort of changes the course of his life. But again, it's another one, a bit like Com Toybin, that it's got a really sparse style to it, but she has an amazing sort of astute way of looking at human nature and it, it's, it's just beautifully written. Um, and uh, the final one then is Eleanor Catton, The Rehearsal. What's this one about? This is about... The uh, fallout from um, a teacher and a pupil having an affair in a school and it's basically how the other students and the teachers and parents come to terms with what's happened. Um, it's written by Eleanor Catton. She's only 24 or she was at the time when she wrote it and um, it's a really sort of, um, it's a very insightful sort of book for, a, for someone so young because um, the school are desperately trying to protect all its students and, and reassure the parents, and the students themselves are sort of considering their own sexuality and how it's sort of looming on them, because they're all sort of 14, 15 years old. And, um, but it's, it's, just, it's just brilliantly written. She's, she's a very exciting young writer. It's quite a different subject matter, isn't it? 
Yeah, it was most famously done by Zoe Heller, I suppose, in Notes on a Scandal. Um, and there was the film that came out a couple of years ago, where it's basically a, a female teacher has an affair with the with a male pupil. Um, but in the rehearsal, it's the other way around. It's a male teacher having an affair with a, a teenage girl who's kind of get, becoming aware of her own sexuality. So it's a really interesting read. Now, what will you be reading then, Ruth, uh, when you hop off on holiday? Um, well, I've just received a copy of the new Nick Cave novel. It's the second uh, novel he's written. It's called The Death of Bunny Munro, and um, it looks very intriguing. Um, and there are just thousands and thousands of Nick Cave fans out there who will be really excited about this one. So, um, yeah, that's what I'll be reading. Great. Ruth, thank you very much for popping in again. It's the second time, of course, you've been on the Borders podcast. Uh, and thanks very much for all the recommendations. You're welcome. Thank you. And all the books Ruth recommended are available to order online now at borders.co.uk. And just before we hear from Ian Rankin, we've already helped you choose your holiday destination with our 25% discount off all travel books. Now we're going that little bit further by helping you learn the lingo for half the normal cost. The Oxford Takeoff in Language courses provide you with an innovative way of learning a language. All the audio content is available as MP3 download and on CD. And also you get a course book, you get some practice audio, as well as additional resources online, which give you the flexibility to learn in your own time while at home or on the move. Now, they're available in nine languages, including Russian and Japanese. And right now at borders.co.uk, you can buy any of the Oxford Takeoff in Language courses for half price. Quick Reads are an exciting and affordable introduction to the world of books for anyone who's lost the reading habit. The award-winning author Ian Rankin is the latest to pen for the Quick Read series, and here he talks to Ed Melian from the National Institute of Adult Continuing Education about the book Cool Head and also why he wanted to get involved, as well as how he got into crime writing and his love of music. I went to a Beach Boys concert in Edinburgh and they introduced a song they were going to do called A Cool Head and they said something about keeping a warm heart but a cool head and in my mind I just flipped it. I said, well, what if you're hot-headed and you've got a cold heart? So it was just that kind of wordplay that meant that I wanted to write a story called A Cool Head that would be about the guy who ends up dead at the beginning is hot-headed with a stone-cold heart. And you've got that interplay in the story between people who are very warm-hearted, humane individuals and people who are sort of vicious, who don't have any sense of responsibility. And I've always been interested in graveyards. As a kid and as a teenager, I would wander around graveyards looking at the gravestones, thinking of the stories that the gravestones could tell and the histories of all these people who've disappeared from the world. I've got someone with special needs. He's 14, but he's got the abilities of a sort of 11, 12-month-old. He's crawling, he doesn't talk. He can do a teeny tiny bit of signing, but not much. And so the communication issues between me and him have got me interested in working with special needs children and adults and also in the whole spectrum of special needs issues in the UK. And so I thought, well, can I create a hero who has special needs without being condescending? Where did the Celine Dion reference come from? <laughs> Yeah, it's one of these things, you know, I came up with the name Celine and I thought, what a great name for a character and she's been named after Celine Dion and all of that. At the end, I wanted a little kind of slightly comedic twist and Celine Dion's perfect for your comedic twist. 
Tell me a bit more about some of the other characters. Where have you had the influence for them? Are they part of your culture, things that you've observed firsthand? I mean, writing crime fiction down the years, I've become friends with journalists. I've covered a lot of real-life stories. There have been links in the past between organised crime, organised criminals, and, for example, the taxi trade in Glasgow. One of the guys owns a taxi firm, but it's a cover for his sort of criminal operations. That was pretty much lifted from the newspapers. I had my central character straight away, and I had this person stumbling into the graveyard with a car full of money and then fallen dead at this guy's feet and suddenly he has got an awful lot of money and he doesn't know what to do with it and it belongs to these gangsters and they want it back. How much of what you've written about is part of what you've seen growing up? What kind of influence did that have? I grew up in a very small coal mining town in east central Scotland. There were only about 7,000 people in the town and everybody seemed to be related to everybody else. It was like a tribe, very close-knit community. But I felt different from a very early age, I was trying to write, I was trying to draw comic strips, but I, I couldn't tell anybody. I didn't think anybody would understand this because nobody around about me had these interests. So I had to hide it. I had to pretend to be one thing while actually feeling that I was something different. So when I got away from my hometown and went to university in Edinburgh and met lots of other people who wanted to be poets or songwriters or novelists or whatever, people who were interested in books and in reading and in writing, that was a great release. That was fantastic. Suddenly I didn't have to hide my true identity anymore. It was around about the time of punk, and the punk ethos was just do it. You can't read music, never mind, get a band going anyway. So I joined a punk band. I was a singer, well, singer, putting it a bit too strongly perhaps, vocalist. I used to shout the words quite well. You know, so I was trying punk, and I was writing poems, and then I was writing stories, and I was sending them off to the BBC or sending them off to magazines, getting lots of rejection letters, but just keep on going. Because that punk ethos said, it doesn't matter what school you went, to. It doesn't matter if your punctuation is great or not. If you've got a story to tell, tell it and get it out there. And so that was a very exciting time. The crime element came in, I think, because I wanted to write about contemporary urban experience, and a lot of that does involve social issues. And if you want to write about social issues, crime fiction is a great way of doing it, in part because cops, as well as dealing with crimes, are also looking at why these crimes come about. I mean, what does it say about society that certain kinds of crime happen? What makes them happen? Are people intrinsically good or intrinsically bad? And the detective is a good means of doing that because he's got access to all areas. He can be talking to the down-and-outs, the disposition, the addicted, the disenfranchised, but he can also investigate the upper echelons of society, the politicians, the movers and shakers, the corporations. So I thought Rebus was a very useful way of me being able to say things about the world which otherwise might not be as easy to say in a novel. If you hadn't been so successful with writing about crime, would there have been any other areas you're interested in exploring? I'm not qualified to do anything apart from write stories, so I would have, I would have struggled, I think. My plan when I was at university was to become a professor of English literature and just read books for a living the rest of my life and do the occasional bit of teaching. But in the climate back then, the higher education climate, I did a postgraduate degree, but I knew I wasn't going to struggle to get a job because there were just no jobs out there. So I would probably have ended up going overseas, teaching English as a foreign language and desperately trying to be a writer because it's the only thing I've ever been interested in really doing. How does someone recognise that they've got that talent within them? They don't. Other people have to tell you, eventually. You've got to build up a hard shell around yourself, because you've got to be open to criticism, and you're going to get lots of knockbacks and lots of rejection letters. So you've got to build up some self-confidence. You've got to tell yourself, this story is worth telling. I mean, if you don't feel like that, then fine, write the story, get it off your chest. It's useful, it's therapeutic to write these things down anyway. Put it in the bottom drawer and leave it. My first novel is still sitting in a bottom drawer somewhere in my uh, house. Nobody ever wanted to publish it. But then I tried again. Eventually the rejection letter stopped and the acceptance letter started coming in. And I won a couple of little prizes and that gave me a little bit of confidence. It was the first sort of validation I'd ever had that what I was doing was actually okay. 
but you've got to keep trying. Let's talk a bit about music. You've mentioned it a couple of times. What is it about music that influences you or helps you to write? Well, like an awful lot of novelists and specifically crime writers, I am a frustrated rock star. I would much rather have been in U2 than be a writer. But I had no musical ability. That was very plain from quite early on. So I've got to live vicariously through my characters and through their musical taste. And I thought quite early on in the, in the Rebus books, music is a good way of talking about character. If you've come across him for the first time and he's sitting late at night in his flat with a glass of whiskey, listen to Leonard Cohen. It's fun to use a lot of music in the books. And I do listen to music all the time. When I'm writing, I mean, I was on the train between Edinburgh and London just yesterday morning. I stuck my headphones on, playing music, and I was writing a short story. And the rest of the world ceases to exist. It dissolves away. And all you've got is this background music in your head and these characters' voices floating through it. Can you describe the process of how that happens? It's got to be instrumental music, because if it's got lyrics, I'll listen to the lyrics. And that's a problem, because then I'm not writing. Radiohead's very good for that, because even if there are lyrics, I can't make up what the heck he's saying. So that's fine. Maybe a bit of Kraut Rock or a bit of Mogwai, Spaceman 3, stuff like that. That's floaty music. I have it on just at a very basic level, you know, it's not loud. It's just blocking out a lot of the other noises that are around. And then I just get into this sort of state, this zone. I just lose all sense of time. It could have been an hour, it could have been three hours, I don't know. But at the end of it, I had about five pages of a brand new story written. The great thing, I think, is that everybody should realise, and this is why everybody should try and write, is that I was creating sentences and characters that had never been created before. I think it's amazing if you look at a dictionary and the words that are in a dictionary, you can write a sentence that no one in the history of the world will ever have written before. It's phenomenal, I think. From 26 letters of the alphabet, we can do that. And how much can other reading influence your writing? Who do you read, for instance? I read everything from comic books to crime novels to non-fiction to history books, newspapers, magazines, music magazines. I was lucky when I was a kid. My parents weren't big readers. They didn't read novels and things. There weren't many books in the house. But an uncle said to them once, it doesn't matter what Ian's reading as long as he's reading. And so they indulged my passion for comic books. And I still get a lot out of them. And there's no snobbery we're reading. There shouldn't be any snobbery we're reading. I know that in certain literary circles maybe there is. But you can get just as much out of reading a comic book as you can out of reading Tolstoy. It's a thing with teenage boys. They say, oh, teenage boys aren't reading anymore. And that got me interested in comic books and how can we get kids to read it. And I've actually got my 16-year-old son into Shakespeare by buying him a comic book version of Macbeth. And it had Shakespearean language in it. It wasn't modern language. He read it. He thought the story was great. Macbeth then came to the theatre in Edinburgh. I took him to see it. He thought it was great. He thought five stars. Two years ago, that wouldn't have happened. So how much do you think quick reads are and, and will break down a lot of these barriers for people? You want to give people stories they want to read. I mean, that's number one. They've got to want to read the stories. And if you've got a big roller coaster crime story with lots of action and adventure and chase scenes and scares and spills and thrills, hopefully that's going to grab you straight away. And at the same time, it's about an ordinary person caught in an extraordinary situation. So it's making a reader think, what would I do in that situation? I mean, any of us out there, anybody in the British Isles, if you walk, were walking down the road and found a bag full of money, what the hell would you do with it? Would you go to the nearest police station and hand it in? Would you try to find out who it belonged to? Would you tuck it under the mattress? Would you go on a nice big holiday? The readers, immediately, as soon as they start the story and they're with a guy who's opening a bag full of money, they're thinking, oh, what would I do? What would I do right now? What does it feel like to have written a book that will be read by certain people and for them it will be the first book they've ever read in their lives. That's a blast. It does happen to me when I do readings and signings or I go to festivals or libraries or into prisons that people will say, oh, the first book I actually finished was one of your books. I mean, there's a, a lot of adults out there who haven't tried reading since they were put off it or scared of it at school. When you meet somebody who's coming to reading for the first time, what I like seeing is the excitement in their face. Yes, I finished that story and I enjoyed that story and I got something out of it and I want to try another one now.
Is there something distinctive about Scottish crime novels compared to crime novels that are based in other countries? There is no tradition of the crime novel in Scotland as there is in England or America. We didn't have a figure like Agatha Christie or Raymond Chandler in America who sort of defined the kind of novel that would then be written. So I think for a long time the English crime novel or writers of English crime novels felt they had to be in that tradition of Agatha Christie. Amateur, upper middle class, ladies and gentlemen who would come along to a village and it'd be a murder, and they would solve the murder because the cops were useless. And order would be restored to that English pastoral scene. There isn't that in a Scottish crime novel, and a Scottish crime novel is actually a fairly recent phenomenon. We owe a, a large debt partly to a kind of urban working-class fiction that came up in Glasgow in the 60s and 70s and 80s with people like William McIlvany, James Kelman, and also to the kind of very dark Gothic stories that were being told in previous centuries by people like Robert Louis Stevenson with Jekyll and Hyde or a guy called James Hogg with Confessions of a Justified Sinner. So there's a dark Gothic thing going on, there's a working-class urban experience thing going on, and that that's what a lot of the best Scottish crime fiction focuses on. We're not so interested in the whodunit elements, the red herrings, the Miss Marple type figure. We're not interested in the village and cricket on the green and the mad woman in the attic and the vicar with the dodgy poison under the bed. We're interested in realistic characters and realistic settings and having realistic things happen to them. There's been a lot of talk recently about culture and identity, and especially in Scotland with the possibility of independence or people being able to vote on independence. How much do you think storytelling keeps the culture and identity alive? I think storytelling is central to our culture, to our mythology, it's central to everything we do. And there's not enough of it about. I mean, that's another problem, I think, is that we're losing that whole body of fairy tales and folk tales that used to be told to kids in bed at night. Before, we had a written-down culture, we had storytelling, we had oral traditions. I remember my dad telling me stories. He had a running character called Johnny Mori. This is when I was, like, three or four, and he would say to me, what does Johnny Mori do today? And I'd say, oh, he goes down to the river with his friends. And my dad would start, and he would just riff on that. He would just riff on this guy going off with his friends. Then, years later, I told that story at a reading I was doing, and this woman said to me, oh, I grew up in Larrickshire, which is the other side of Scotland from where I grew up. And my dad told me stories about Johnny Mori as well. So obviously this was a kind of folk figure that I didn't know about. I thought my dad invented them, but obviously it was a folk figure he'd heard about when he was a kid. And so these stories get disseminated. And there's always a moral core to the stories that you're telling. So it's a great way of teaching kids values as well. And I'm very keen that we get parents back into telling bedtime stories and making up stories and having that adventure with their kids that adventure of the imagination. What's frustrating to me is that the kids go to school and we then knock imagination out of them. As a certain point comes in a, in a kid's life when the teachers and the adults say, right, you're not allowed to have fantasy friends anymore. You're not allowed to have play pretend games anymore. You've got to stop having this imaginative life, playing with your soldiers, your cowboys, your dolls, whatever, and you've got to grow up. Well, writers are just kids who refuse to grow up. We're still playing with our imaginary friends. We're still playing let's pretend games. We're still living inside our heads. And I think there should be more of that, not less of it. What else can we do to get things right? There's millions of people who don't read, whether they can't be bothered or because they struggle with it. As a writer and someone who's been involved in a lot of literacy programmes, what needs to happen? It's never too late. I mean, that's the lesson that I've learned, is it's never too late to learn to read and write. I mean, that's one of the great things, is that as an adult you can still learn. So if you've had trouble at school, if you've been put off by the, the books that they've tried to make you read at school or whatever, and you've then got scared of reading and you haven't done it for a while, it's never too late. Stories are waiting for you. They're just waiting for you to come back to them. Ian Rankin's A Cool Head is available to buy online, along with all his other titles, including the famous Inspector Rebus novels. Just visit borders.co.uk. 
And before I go, I've got time to tell you about how you can get up to 40% off our top 100 bestsellers. The most popular new books in fiction and non-fiction, including The White Tiger from Borders Author of the Year, Aravind Adiga, The Storm by the politician Vince Cable, and one I've got my eye on, CJ Sampson's Revelation. Visit borders.co.uk and click on the up to 40% off bestsellers link for a full list of all the books on offer. Well, that brings us to the end of this Borders podcast. I hope you've enjoyed it. Remember to check back at the beginning of July at borders.co.uk for the next podcast, which will be full of more interviews and news from the world of books, music, DVD, as well as competitions and offers. I'm Susan Spence, and on behalf of all the team at Borders, thanks for listening. To